today we're going to look at one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. Even people who don't read the Bible, they know some, you know, semblance of some stories in God's Word. You know, you could put up there Adam and Eve. Most people would know that. Or Noah's Ark. That's a, another big one. Today, I'd say up there in that kind of Mount Rushmore of those Bible stories would be David and Goliath. People that do not even know about the story of Goliath use the term Goliath to describe someone who is big. Someone who's never cracked the pages of scripture will say, man, he's a Goliath. He's big. It's, it's kind of worked itself into our modern day vernacular and culture, going back to this story that we're going to look at today. And we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this, this passage we're going to see is so much about courage. You know, it might be the most famous courage story in all of the world, the story of David and Goliath. We're so familiar with this story about courage, it's just a commonplace in our culture. But I want to suggest to you that there are some deep Bible things that work in this passage that you might not see at first glance that get to the heart of what it means to have courage. You know, we all like some good stories on courage. You know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good, like, war story of someone who showed courage and bravery, put their life on the line. You know, I even like reading stories today, you know, living or working in the corporate world, someone who stood up for what they knew to be true in spite of everyone else telling them, oh, that's a gray area, or There's not, that's, not a, that's not a big deal. Someone having the courage to stand for truth in the boardroom, that is a big deal. That is something that we should celebrate. So we're going to look at this story of David, this young boy who had courage. And we'll pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. It said, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. You know, we, we tend to glamorize and romanticize ancient warfare, but it was awful. Ancient warfare was terrible. Today, we, we kill from a distance. We have drones. We have, you know, missiles that will shoot from hundreds of miles away. In ancient times, you killed it at arm's length. You saw the white of the eyes of the person you were engaging in battle. The battle in this time was terrible. The, the battle was against the Philistines. The Philistines were the perpetual enemy of the Israelites. They were a fearsome enemy. The, the Philistines were one of the most advanced civilizations of this era. They were the first to work with bronze and iron. Their weapons and shields, unlike Israel's, were made of iron. The Philistines controlled three of the major cities of the most popular trade route at this time, the Via de Mars. The Philistines controlled these cities. But here's the thing. God had given the land of Canaan to Israel. It was Israel's land. It was theirs for the taking. Israel had just never fully believed the promise that God would do it. And so they had this continual struggle with this people group called the Philistines. The Philistines were not supposed to be there. God had promised this land to Israel. So we have this battle that's recorded for us. Let's pick up in verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, 
and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Six cubits and a span would mean nine foot six. Nine foot six. He was a big, big man. Verse five said he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. Now, a coat of mail, that doesn't mean he was plastered with a bunch of uh, postcards and stamps. A coat of mail is referred to as one of those iron metal meshings. You kind of see that in like medieval warfare. They became very popular. But the Philistines were really one of the first ones to bring this into the battlefield. And here Goliath is wearing this. It was very rare, very expensive. But the Philistines had them because they worked with iron. It was almost kind of like a a um, pre-body suit. You know, the police will wear the the shield now to protect them. That was kind of what they had back in that time to protect them from arrows. So, and it says, keep reading here, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulder. Now, why does the narrator the the writer here keep using the word bronze he keeps telling us bronze 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 it's because he wanted the reader to know and people back in that time would have realized that bronze was very rare only a few people had it and this was what made the philistines such a fearsome enemy israel going into battle was already outclassed because they didn't have these bronze weapons. They were coming to battle with weapons that you would use in farming. There was not the, the weapons that, of the Philistines. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. This is called representative warfare, where a person fights on behalf of the army. Don't think of it as an arm wrestling match. It was much more gruesome than that. The stakes were high. If, if Israel's representative were to lose, then thousands of people would die. Their women, their children would be taken into slavery or, or even killed. Scripture tells us that day and night for 40 days, Goliath taunted them, calling them out, cursing their God. Said verse 10, and the, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. As they were prepping for breakfast, I would imagine Goliath just had this deep, like bellowing voice that just rumbled across the valley. They would hear Goliath cursing their God, calling them out calling the men of Israel a coward. As they're sitting around the campfire, eating their s'mores at night, 
they could hear Goliath calling out to them. This just nightmare went on for 40 days, hearing them, him say, give me a man. Terrifying. And here's what's terrifying is that the king might come and say, you, go fight him. All of the men were probably trembling. At least maybe all of the larger men in the army were thinking, is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Verse 11, when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now remember, it tells us in Samuel, the reason why Saul was chosen king over Israel, he was chosen king because he was head and shoulders above everyone else. He wasn't chosen because of his, you know, his, his great courage, or he wasn't chosen because he was a righteous, godly man. He was chosen because of his outward appearance. He was a big man. In other words, he was the strong, capable giant, their man of war, who they thought guaranteed them security and would make them proud. What you are seeing here is that the king that Israel has chosen to replace God has utterly failed them. I think we learn a lesson here that when we look to anyone other than God to be our Savior, they will utterly fail us. Every single time. Verse 17. Here's where David comes into the story. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, and these ten loaves, and carry them to the camp to your brothers. David had three brothers there in Saul's army. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Man, this is a pathetic scene. They're not going to battle. They're just lining up for battle. One on one side of the mountain, one on the other side of the mountain. You got Goliath in the middle of the valley screaming. They're lining up for battle each day, but not fighting. Imagine going to watch the Orlando Magic at Amway Arena. They do all of the pregame stuff. They line up. They sing the national anthem. The countdown goes off. The buzzer, the game's ready to start, the crowd is cheering. They've got the towel guy out there going around, running around the, the stadium, getting the crowd all ready for the game. The team huddles, and they say, go magic. And they sit on the bench. And they don't take the court. That's essentially what is happening. Over and over, never taking the court. It's embarrassing. That's where Israel finds himself. Verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So David hears Goliath for the first time, and David essentially asks, who is this meathead, and why doesn't somebody go up and take him out? To which I'm sure they all said, dude, he's like 9'6". Have you seen him? Do you want to fight this guy? Now, 
Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? It's almost like he is belittling, belittling him here. Your few sheep, those little bit of sheep that you take care of out on the hillside. I know your presumptions and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He's saying, you've left all your responsibility just because you want to come get a, see it, have a good show. You want to be entertained by the battle, so you've left your responsibilities at home. You know, how stinging this must have been for David. You know, isn't it true when sometimes when you're trying to do what's right, that it's those that are closest that come in opposition to you? Those that should be on your side supporting you are the ones that are opposing you. Well, somebody goes and tells Saul, and at first, Saul is excited to hear that there is someone who wants to fight this champion, Goliath, until in walks a 15-year-old, baby-faced, runt little kid into Saul's tent. He doesn't have any battle experience or scars or cool tattoos. Just this boy that says he will fight Goliath. (laughs) What does Saul say? And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, but you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. I love this. We'll stop right here for just a second. He left the morning tending sheep, but he's speaking in the past. I used to keep sheep. It's almost like he's given himself a promotion. (laughs) I used to be a sheep herder, but now I am a giant removal specialist today. It's like he's given himself a battlefield promotion already. He said, verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. What I find interesting about this is David's the first one to mention that he is You can see he's just indignant that they would defy his God. That meant more to him that they would defy the God of the armies of Israel. He said, Saul, I fought lions and bears, and God delivered me. I know he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So he does not have a sword, <laughs> doesn't have a bronze sword, he doesn't have a mail of coat or coat of mail, he doesn't have a bronze helmet. What does scripture say? He takes, he takes 
five smooth stones and his shepherd's staff. <laughs> Can I go fight this, this giant with a shepherd's staff and five stones? Verse 41. And the Philistine moved toward, forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come out with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. The Philistine said to David, Come to me. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of Israel's, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear. Man. What a powerful speech. What a courageous speech to say that in front of this giant. I would have liked to have known if, if Goliath either laughed or if it made him mad. I'd like to know that. You know, he's speaking to two audiences here, David is. One, the world. He's going to show them that the God of Israel is the true God. And then he's going to show them, number two, that God keeps his promises. He says, finishing out that verse, he says, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. God's in control. God has the battle in his hand. Notice that David is asking different questions than everybody else. Everybody else is concerned with, oh, who's going to go fight this Philistine? Everybody else is asking, how big is our enemy? Do we have anybody big enough or strong enough to beat him? David only asks, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? You know where courage comes from? It begins when you start to change the question. Courage comes when you stop asking, what am I capable of? And start asking, what does God want me to do? That's when courage comes. Switching it from me and my abilities to God and what does he want me to do? That's when courage comes. If God calls me to do it, he'll see me through it. Verse 48. Let's see what happens. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put in his hand 
his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. Man, what a story, right? What a story. Can you imagine the roar of the Israelite army when Goliath fell face down? And I like to picture, this is kind of gruesome here, so hang with me for a second. When David cuts off the head of Goliath, he grabs it by the hair and he turns around to the Philistine army to show them our God is great. Our God, the God of Israel, is the true God. So here's the million-dollar question. What is the point of this story? I've heard it spoken many different ways. Maybe you've heard some of these before. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. We've heard that phrase before. There is always hope for the underdog, so never stop believing in yourself. You know, that's, that's one. You know, don't stop believing. Even when you hear the feeling, yeah, okay, yeah, you get it. I'll stop there. I'll save you the rest of it. Or how about this one? If you trust God, God will give you the victory over all the giants in your life. I've heard that one, but yeah, that's, that's not the, the point of the story. Or God has appointed you to conquer the giant of mediocrity and thrive in your job and the relationships and your finances. Yeah, I, I would not say that one. Or God has appointed you to succeed in all things if you have courage. I've heard all these taught as the main point. I don't want to say that there's no application there toward those things, but they are not the main point. Let me teach you something about Bible interpretation, particularly Old Testament interpretation. The common mistake when we read the Bible is we look at a character like David and we we say we need to be like David. But we forget one person in that equation. We look at it and we say it's not just David, us being like David, but David is a symbol, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And we're to be like Christ, not David. Jesus Christ himself said that all of the Old Testament is about me. So many stories in the Old Testament, when you read them, you can look at, it's written as a foreshadowing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't cut out the middleman. In this case, Jesus is seen in this story. You might say, Pastor, Jesus' name wasn't even the passages that you read. Yeah, it wasn't. Let me show you here. Jesus 
is the true David. Jesus, like David, defeated the giant as our representative while we stood on the sidelines. While all of our idols, all of the things that we are looking to in this life to save us, our good works, our financial security, our health, all the souls we had chosen to put our trust in stood pathetically on the sidelines, unable to deliver us. Almost a thousand years after David and Goliath's battle took place, a small baby was born in Bethlehem, where David was born. He took the field as our representative and utterly crushed Satan all by himself. Jesus, in every way, he is our representative. He lived the life we were supposed to live. He faced the temptations that Satan threw at him and overcame them all. And then he died the death that we were condemned to die. He fought as our representative and he died as our representative. And because of his death, we are now free from death and hell. Man. You see, Goliath in the story is not primarily supposed to represent the contemporary obstacles in your life. Career difficulties, chronic pain, cancer, you know, Comrade Putin or China, whatever you want to talk about today, all the folks on the other side of the political aisle. Goliath is a picture of Satan who defies God. Remember who was Goliath cursing and defying the God of the armies of Israel. Goliath is a picture of Satan who defies God, threatens his people, and attempts to thwart his purposes. In his hand, Jesus holds the sword of sin and the curse of death. But at the cross... Jesus took the curse for our sin, and in so doing, he took the sword of our sin out of his hands, and he conquered Satan. Man, that's something to celebrate, isn't it? That's something that we can rejoice about. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Man, it sounds like our story of David and Goliath. There we stood on the sideline, captive to our fear, to our guilt, to our shame, sin, our shame from sin, then Jesus came and partook of the flesh and blood and disarmed our enemy on our behalf. We no longer live in captivity, terrified by this threat, because we have the truer David, Jesus Christ, who fought sin and conquered on our behalf. Number two, because of Jesus' victory, I can have undaunted confidence. 
And here's how this story gives us confidence. What if in the things that scare us, the things in life that cause us anxiety, what if the real threat in all of those is already gone? Here's what I mean. We fear, many of us, we fear rejection. We fear that something we say or do will make others turn away from us. But what if Jesus had taken the steer, the, the, the sting out of that fear by making us permanently acceptable to God in him? He says, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. In him we hear our heavenly father say, you are my beloved son. You, in you I am well pleased. You see, if I know, if we know that we have this affirmation what other people think about us becomes less important because we live for an audience of one. We live to please God the Father. So we can take that as confidence. And that frees me up, frees us up. Of course, we don't want to fail at anything, but failure is not a verdict on my life. I've already been declared valuable and my usefulness is assured and guaranteed by God. That gives us confidence that no matter where you are in life, no matter what avenue you're walking in life right now, to have this confidence that we are accepted by God is freeing. Jesus defeated the real enemy in all of these things. So when Goliath, Satan, the accuser, says to me after a personal failure, God will never forgive you. Jesus stands there as my representative saying, I've already have. I've already separated your sin as far as the east is from the west. Though your sins were red like scarlet, I have made them white as snow. My mercies are new every day. The story of David and Goliath does not mean that God now serves as my genie to immediately eliminate any problem. It means that in suffering, in loss, in death and pain, God has removed the stinger and he is weaving all things together for his glory and our good. Man, we can leave here today with that confidence. And last of all, because of Jesus' victory, I can have audacious courage. Listen closely to this. Like I said, this story is mainly about what Jesus would one day do on the cross and the big giant of our sin and the death of, that he would eliminate. But it's not just about that. It also gives us a picture of how God works through his people today when they trust him. You see, yes, David was a picture of the coming Messiah, but David was also a real guy at a real point in history, living among real people, facing real danger. God 
had promised to give the land of Canaan to Israel and defeat all enemies like the Philistines. And Goliath stood in the way of that. David perceived the Philistines and Goliath in opposition to what God wanted to do. So he said, you will not stand in the way of what God wants. In our day, don't we see the enemy trying to threaten and thwart the work of God? When you think back in your life, how many times has the devil worked to pull you away from a God who loves you? This story shows us that when we see Satan defying the good things God has intended for his children, we can reply to him, you will not undo God's work in my life. You will not undo the work in the lives of my kids. I don't care how loud your threats are or how big your sword is. Think about it. If Goliath represents Satan's challenges to the work of God, When I see Satan working to undo God's work there, can I not say to him what David said to him on that battlefield? You come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord our God. How many times have we gone to our knees in prayer, praying that prayer, asking for God's help in our struggles. This story means it's right for us to try big, audacious things for God. Jesus' victory doesn't mean I will never face any obstacles or even that I will overcome in an earthly sense all of them. It does mean that when we see Satan at work in a situation, I can stand against him and say, the battle belongs to our God. And God will fight for us, just like he did for David. Let's pray.